It's the Planet Fitness You Can Still Join a Gym in 2023 sale. Join the judgment-free zone and get equipment for every workout for just $1 down, $10 a month, cancel any time, and pay nothing until January 17th. Hurry! Deal ends Friday, December 29th. See club for details. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, we'll take a moment to appreciate a classic, Handel's Messiah. The opening of the Hallelujah Chorus uh, is perhaps the most widely recognized piece of music anywhere. And why it's so good. There's nothing like Messiah because it's all scripture. And I mean, it's just so powerful, everything. We'll also look at the toxic impact of social media on young people. 60% of teen girls persistently feel sad and lonely. And Mm. these girls are on like five social media platforms. So you'd think from the face of it, they're more connected with people than ever before. And yet they don't feel connected with anybody. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I hope you enjoyed a blessed Christmas and God's best to you as we look forward to the new year. I'm coming to you from the Pacific Northwest and my home station of KPDQ in Portland and from 820 AM The Word in Seattle. You can catch the stream of my program at kpdq.com. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start with a seasonal classic, Handel's Messiah. It was written in 1741 and performed first in Music Hall in Dublin on April 13, 1742. It is a classic, a musical masterpiece, an oratorio of Christian worship that has stood the test of time. Handel's Messiah's rich theology and prolific reference to Scripture tells the story of Christ in a way that moves audiences and performers alike, as much today as it did more than 280 years ago. Jerry Newcomb is the director of Providence Forum. He's also the host of Truths That Transform, a broadcast of D. James Kennedy Ministries. He joined Greg Seltz on WAVA in the nation's capital. Well, listen, I, you know, I had to have you on because I read, I read this article that you had written with somebody, but it was also, I just saw this Christmas movie about Charles Dickens and, you know, just how at, he was at the end of his rope and he was almost running out of, you know, he, he was a popular writer and then he had a bunch of failures and flops and was running out of cash and people were expecting and then he writes Scrooge and it becomes wow. this bestseller and it, it literally sells out. Well, that reflected back to me what happened with Handel, with George Friedrich Handel and the creation of the Messiah and I thought, let's talk about that together, because what a lot of people at Christmas, they think Christmas is this, you know, get yourself all hyped up. You know, it's, it, if you're not happy, well, that's your problem. Well, here was Handel at, at the end of his rope and, and literally almost crushed by life itself. And then almost a miracle happens. And what a blessing it's been. So let's talk about that. Get, get back to the Handel story and take us through some of the basics. How did this creation of what what is now you know, not only a classic, but something that literally moves us to this day. How did it happen? Sure. Well, just real quick outline. Handel was from Germany, right. and his dad wanted him to study law, and he did study law, but his real inclination was toward music. And uh, he was able to pursue that and became, become a composer, and he went to England, which is where he lived most of his life as a composer and was very successful uh, for a while and did a lot of operas and so forth. 
But by the 17, early 1740s, he was virtually bankrupt. And not only right. that, but he was, he was heavily in debt. Right. And then a friend sent him a libretto, a text for a sacred opera, if you will, mm-hmm. which is known as an oratorio. And it was basically 73 Bible verses, uh, 42 from the Old Testament, 31 from the New Testament, all pointing to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This was the text of Messiah. His friend Charles Jennings Jr. played a critical role in this, and that ended up becoming a great success. He wrote it in a very short time. It was performed in 1742, and it revived you know, his career to the end of his days. But he blessed the whole world. Yeah, <laughs> with, with that fantastic music that's still with us. And it is said that the opening of the Hallelujah Chorus da, 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 is, uh, is perhaps the most widely recognized piece of music anywhere. It's a, Isn't that interesting? And, and, and again, he wrote this in a very short time. Well, and that's what I want to get to, because, see, a lot of times people, again, these great works, they come out of great challenge, great struggle. Um, and, and you were talking about this. And a lot of times people don't realize this. I mean, yes, he was a talented musician, but he he's here he is. He's at the end of his rope. He's almost penniless. And then, of course, we were talking earlier about, you know, back in those days, you were held accountable for your debts, unlike a lot of our stuff today. Yeah. You know, yeah. and Pete could have been in debtor's prison and all those kind of things. Right. And then he gets these Bible verses. And, I, and what amazes me is that, see, people, I think a lot of people were listening. Uh, they forget what... What we Christians say about the Bible is the Bible is the is the Word of God is is I, we we call it sacramental in the Lutheran tradition. Where all we mean is it's already full of God. I mean it's like radioactive. You know you don't bring something to it; it brings something to you. And so it's it's one of those things. It's full of the very power and the Spirit of God. And so he gets these verses, and that's what like overwhelms him in such a way that out of this thing, what is it about three and a half weeks? He produces this stuff. Didn't he? I mean, I, get, I don't even think he ate very much during that time. That, that's exactly right. In right? fact, it, he barely ate during the 24 days that he wrote this fantastic, you know, masterpiece. And in fact, uh, at one point, his his servant brought food to him, and he said the composer had come, come came out of his room, and he had tears in his eyes, and he cried out to the servant, "I did uh, think that I saw all heaven before me." and the great God himself, and he had just finished the Hallelujah Chorus. Yeah. So it's really a, a, an amazing piece, and, and this is something he did when he was 56 years old. You could tell God was with him. Uh, for example, at our church, you know, just a local church in South Florida, uh, in some ways impacted by the legacy of Dr. D. James Kennedy, right. we do Messiah each year as well as some other uh, concerts, but there's nothing like Messiah. Because it's all scripture, right. and it's just so fantastic. I mean, right. in fact, we I uh, I had a friend come. In fact, it was the lady that wrote the the Myra Adams uh, asked me if if she could, you know, co- have me help her with an article about Messiah, and maybe that's the one you read. Yeah, I think that's the one about. I read. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and she posted it in town hall and then some other places as well. And I invited her to come to it. And she told me during the intermission that she is actually she and her husband have seen Messiah at the Kennedy Center, and she said their performance had nothing over your performance. Wow! Uh, you know, and I, I will say that the you know the, the musicians, 
are paid, uh, you know, the orchestra, but also the four main parts, you know, the yeah. the soprano, the alto, the tenor, and the bass, those are paid positions. Uh, and, of course, the conductor, who's our music minister at the church, but, you know, basically everything else is... It's all volunteers, and including my wife. I thought you were going to. I mean, it's just—it really is fantastic. Well, I thought they were. I thought you were the paid uh, uh, no, base. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, if I find that out about you, Jerry, that's going to be too much. What, that I be... get, no, no. I, I do whenever I try to sing. Somebody says, "Hey, can you carry a tune?" Oh, sure. Yeah, we'll carry that tune outside, please. Yeah. Well, listen. You know, again, when we talk about this, the reason why I like reflecting back on this is so many great things that have been bequeathed to the world came out of struggle. I always like to go back to, you know, when Jacob wrestles with God and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And there's that sense where Christians don't realize that sometimes we're thrown into the struggles of life, even our own struggles, because God wants to bless others even through us. And I bet you Handel would have probably said, well, can you find another way? Um, (laughs) But three and a half weeks later, it's something that it literally had to overwhelm him probably to hear it even sung back to him don't you think i mean yeah and and it, it was such a, a, a and it was a success from the very beginning in other words when it was first performed uh around easter time by the way in 1742 in dublin and it was actually for a charity benefit concert yeah. and it was very successful and then it was performed in london about a year later and the the custom began to develop that when the Hallelujah Chorus would come on, then the people would rise to their feet, including the monarch. And the story is even told about uh, when Queen Victoria at one point, at one of the performances of Messiah, she was there and she uh, was struggling to get to her feet because of her, uh, her frail health at the time. And she said something to the effect of as she stood up, you know, very as carefully as she could. Um, how could I sit in the presence of the King of Kings? So wow. there's, there's something almost otherworldly about the music of yeah. Handel's Messiah. And by the way, I've, I've referenced the Hallelujah Chorus, but of course, there's, you know, oh, the it, thing is a masterpiece. Everything. Yeah. It's just terrific. He shall you know, feed pour his unto us, yeah. a child is born, and all we like sheep. And, and uh, yeah. yeah, and it's so interesting, too, because the rarely do people hear including even at our own church the complete unabridged version of messiah and sometimes you know they leave things out just because well this point is already made and you know they just they don't have time to do the whole whole thing but um i'm always missing that part where it goes he gave his back to the smiters he he you know, he gave his back to the spiders. I mean, it's just so powerful, everything. Yeah. And, you know, in the one thing, in Colossians 3, when it talks about singing, you know, the word of God into your heart, I mean, it, it, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and that's exactly what this is. It sings these words right down deep into your heart. And I think, you know, one of the things that people forget, too, is that, you know, the anti-God secular status you can see we're having a, a, a bloodless revolution right now in, in our society because they're trying to do a French revolution on us right now, too. And we've talked about that again here in the middle of all that. They try to bring Handel's Messiah and say, wait a minute, don't forget this. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And we shouldn't forget it, because if there is no God, we have no right. That's right. And that's exactly that's exactly the failed experiment of socialism in one version or another, communism in the in the 20th century all those different 
different states that that went down that road, they basically undermine human rights. You know, one one way I put it this way: in the uh, 18th century, the Bible was killed. In the 19th century, God was killed. And in the 20th century, man was killed. And it, it really follows from that sequence. But God has revealed Himself. And he's revealed himself through his holy scriptures. He's revealed himself through his word. And, of course, Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. And and the music of Handel is so timeless. He wrote this in 1741, and it still touches the human heart. And it still, um, you know, brings joy and comfort and, and peace. Even the people who, who uh, let's say, don't even know there's something in that music that touches them. And then the words themselves are beautifully adapted from the King James Bible, which itself is a beautiful uh, masterpiece, really, a literary masterpiece. Coming up, the dangers of social media. 60% of teen girls persistently feel sad and lonely. And Mm. these girls are on like five social media platforms. So you'd think from the face of it, they're more connected with people than ever before. And yet they don't feel connected with anybody. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Something dramatic changed in 2012. That was the year Facebook acquired Instagram for $1 billion. And young people flocked to the visually driven social media site. And of course, there's TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube, WhatsApp, and various other apps I probably am unaware of. Well, the point is this. In the last 10 years, we've been transformed. More specifically, we've witnessed young people being transformed. Sarah Ekoff Zilstra is an editor for the Gospel Coalition. She published a piece titled Why I Left Social Media and Won't Go Back. She was a guest on The Common Good with host Brian Fromm and guest co-host Pastor Steve Cobble from AM 1160, Hope for Your Life in Chicago. Why are you leaving social media? What made you get to that decision? So let's start even a little bit farther back why I got on social media. I got on a long time ago, um, like 15 years ago when when Facebook first opened up to the world. And when I got on, I was a stay-at-home mom of toddlers, and then I became a homeschooling mom. And it was just a wonderful way for me to connect with other people. Now, that was back in the day. And social media has changed tremendously. And probably so have I over the years. As your kids get older, it starts feeling weirder when you post about them, or it's you feel like you should be asking them for permission or like, yeah. they kind of come into their own. It's a different thing. And so I, I quit posting about my kids. And then it started to feel kind of self promotional. As I write more for the Gospel Coalition and publish more, I thought I was just putting up stuff that I wrote. And that kind of seemed like a weird thing to do to my Mm -hmm. friends. So I just started using social media less and less, but I never could get off um, because I thought, well, what if something happens? Even though I didn't Mm -hmm. like going there, I didn't 
feel good when I got off. I felt like I was wasting my time or I felt jealous of somebody or I felt frustrated by somebody else's incompetence. (laughs) Um, So eventually this past year in 2022, I did a podcast that was called Scrolling Alone. And it was about Gen Z girls and how they use social media. And I could see how tangled up they were in it and how much it took from them and how little it gave back. And that allowed me to finally see that it was doing the same thing to me. Mm. Um, And that was the kick that I needed. We uh, research shows, my own research, my own limited research shows, we almost all need a kick if we're going to actually leave social media. And that was my kick for me Mm. to see, oh boy, this isn't giving me what I think it is. And it's taking so much more than I realize. Sarah, I'm curious, you talked about how social media has changed since you first got on. In what ways do you think it is kind of changed and changed for the worse? Yeah. So when I first got on, it was kind of at the beginning of the news feed Um, that came pretty early, but that's something that changed social media a lot. Instead of going to your friends' pages, Facebook was serving that up to you. And you'll probably notice if you ever look at your news feed, there's more and more advertisements in it and it's more and more driven by an algorithm. So way back in the day when I was just friends with, I don't know, 50 or 100 people or whoever were my actual friends, I would just literally see chronologically what they were putting up. But now I don't see what they're putting up. I would just be seeing what the algorithm is giving me, like maybe you want to look at this or here's an ad or here's somebody else's post that's getting a lot of engagement, keeps popping up over and over and over again. And so it didn't feel like I was connecting with my friends. It felt more, Facebook felt more and more like there was a medium in between us that was Mm. choosing what we were looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Have you missed it at all? What's been the result in your life? Are you, are you finding greater peace and less anxiety or are you like, Oh, I wish I was able to hop on Facebook or Instagram right now. (laughs) Good question. I want, that's one thing that I worried the most about before, because when you delete your accounts, you you know, if you come back, you have to find all those people again. So it's Mm. it's like, Oh, it's going to be a lot of work if I decide I don't like it and have to come back on. That's one thing that kind of held me back. I have not missed it for one hot second. I've been off now for since March. And the reason isn't that I'm not missing things because I am. I am missing when people put up their Christmas pictures. But what I have received back in terms of a greater attention span, much more energy, the disappearance of kind of that low level anxiety that I was, I didn't even realize I was feeling till it was gone. The ability to focus on my Bible more, the ability to read longer articles and books, the ability to be interested in my kids and my family, the ability to think longer and more complex thoughts, even about like how my household should run Mm. or about, you know, something we're tackling at work or just the ability to engage in those things. I just feel like it has given me a boost or it's like when somebody you know you're driving along but the brakes are on or something you know and like all of a sudden you lift those off and you're like oh i can go so much faster and easier when the brakes are off Mm -hmm. sarah one of the things that i talk often with my wife about and it's hard at my wife i'm like she's beautiful she's 30 years old she's got my little guy she's she bounced back from pregnancy <laughs> um, like nobody's business. Um, you know, I've, I've fluctuated more in weight than. than <laughs> uh, but like just the, the spirit of comparison just seems to be like, and, and maybe I, I'm guessing that it's, it's for men as well, but for women, it seems like that, that spirit of comparison is just like nonstop, whether it be somebody bouncing back from pregnancy or how somebody's life is going, who's doing what. Can you speak to the the way social media creates the spirit of comparison? 
Absolutely. I would say that comparison not only drags you down, it makes you feel lonely because mm. um, it's taking a friendship and turning it into something that's far more shallow and more competitive than if I was sitting in a room with your wife and we had a real life relationship, we'd see so much more of each other just as a holistic person. Mm. You can trace in the statistics the sharp increase in teen girls' persistent sadness and loneliness. And it just traces right with the smartphone and social media. There is data behind it that literally when you are on, when a woman is on social media and you're right, it affects girls. You can see in the data as well, the boys are going up a little, but the girl increase is just sharp and straight up. 60% of teen girls persistently feel sad and lonely. And mm. these girls are on like five social media platforms. So you'd think from the face of it, they're more connected with people than ever before. And yet they don't feel connected with anybody. They mm. feel like they're alone by themselves. You're right. They're comparing themselves with other people. And that goes, it's bad in two respects. One, you can feel like, wow, I'm look, I look way better than she does or I'm like way <laughs> yeah. more together than she does. Or you can feel like I'm a mess. I'm a failure. I'll never have anything that looks as good as she does. Mm -hmm. So either way, it's not good for you um, because that comparison isn't coming with a, and I, and I want to be clear, like God made us to live in relationship, to look at other people, to kind of see, oh, are you doing it like this and get good ideas from people? But when that's built inside a real life community, girls around your table, girls out to coffee together, and you sort of get the whole perspective, there's just such a depth to that that takes yeah. out the sting of the comparison and, and empowers and wraps in love and encourages along in a way that just looking at someone else's living room that they shove the toys out of so it looks really clean and perfect. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, that's just... That's just you comparing your real life to someone else's fake life. That's right. And even though we know we're doing it, it still affects us emotionally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Should the people listening get off their social media accounts? You know, what would you tell them? Is it you need to get off or is it, hey, you? I understand why you stay, but here's some guardrails for you. What would you say to people who are like, I don't know what I think about this? Um, I, I believe that God is sovereign over everything. So I 100% believe he does good work on social media and that Christians can connect there. And there are things that you can learn and there is beautiful things about it. But when I look at the numbers, I would just say that I don't know, there would be a rare woman who would be able to be on there in a healthy way. Mm. That feels like, that feels extreme. But I would say this, I think you should feel called into social media. It shouldn't be the default. And right now it's everyone's default, but I think it's such a dangerous space that probably the default should be to be off. And then if you feel a burden or like a, you know, I really need to be on for these reasons, or I feel like God is calling me on for these reasons, then you should first educate yourself really well um, and then go on. Coming up. I've noticed that many men spend far more time taking care of their lawn than they do working on their marriage. Oh, yes. And I think that is a fundamental problem. Marriage and priorities when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. 
Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. Marriage. If you're married, I hope you cherish your spouse and the gift of marriage. I hope it's something you deeply care about and nurture. Doug Bursch, a writer and former pastor, has noticed that many men are uber-disciplined in caring for their lawns, but how about their wives? Bursch is a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. What is it about you and lawn care? Are you yourself obsessed by lawn care? No. You know, I gave you this title because one of my irritants uh, as a pastor, I pastored 24 years, yeah. uh, is that I've seen that men grow in their ability to take care of their lawns. Mm-hmm. They get they get better at it. They, In fact, uh, lots of practice. They find out, you know, get rid of moles and yep. And spend hours, and they have pretty amazing lawns. And I've noticed that many men spend far more time taking care of their lawn and learning how to make a better lawn than they do working on their marriage. Oh, oh, yes. And I think that is a fundamental problem. Yes. And so, hey, before you turn away, I feel like someone's going to turn the radio off. Do not turn this off. Wait, this guy. You're a man listening. I'm feeling guilty already. Yeah, but I just... Uh, sometimes we buy lies and it's even the lie of the man being the old, like, Oh, I don't know what I'm doing. My wife's the smart one and the emotionally intelligent one. And I just survive and do what she tells me to do. And I'm going to say that's not good enough. And uh, we give energy to a lot of things, uh, to our lawns, to work. I know for you, John, you know, you probably had different general managers, different things. You've learned how to do what is necessary to keep your job. And I get an amen, right? Amen. (laughs) But with marriage, you know, we don't even treat it, like that, or we just believe we can't do that. So I thought about lawn care. Maybe I could relate to men who could relate to lawn care. If you want to improve at your marriage, uh, you have to assess what's going on and to know it, not to be oblivious to it. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage, and many people are not going to do this. What the advice I'm giving right now, someone is not going to do, but I wish you would. And this is what I wish you'd do. Sit down with your spouse and have a conversation about what is. Say, you know, I want to be a better husband, or maybe even if you know things are bad, to come in with, I know I'm not doing this right, I know I need to do it better, and I genuinely want to know what you like about what I do, what you don't, like everything on the table. This is like assessing the damage of the lawn. How much moss do we have out there? Mm-hmm. How many weeds do we... Just to be open to say, I'm not, I'm not going to defend myself, I'm not going to get in a fight. If I do get in a fight, you have to remind me that I told you I wasn't going to get into a fight, that my goal is just to assess what is. And that might be really difficult, but that reality exists whether you have that meeting or not. Your wife is still thinking that and feeling that, so it would be better to know it. Toughen up, listen, and figure out the reality of what's going on in your marriage. Even if you can't fix a thing, even if it's like, oh, I didn't know things were that bad. They are that bad whether or not you know about it. It would be better to know about it. So that's the first step. That's good. Okay. Now, look, now, I, I love all this, Doug, but the stumbling block, I believe, for a lot of people is that you genuinely want to know and want to make an adjustment. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. If you don't want to know, then you're in trouble. Yeah. And I can't make somebody, it's like you can't make someone want to repent. But I'm telling you, if you're in a relationship, there's things to repent of. There's things to say. Yeah. By the way, here's a sign you're not a healthy person. If you can't remember the last time you apologized to your spouse, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Because uh, if you live with someone long enough, you're going to mess up at least once a day, maybe <laughs> 20 times a day, right? Yep. Uh, and again, if you're like, well, that's just not me. Well, it needs to become who you are because this is the most important relationship entrusted to your care. But when you think of something you actually need to put some energy towards, 
if you're married, this is the primary area. So yeah, I, whether someone says, well, I don't want to ask those questions. I don't care. Ask them, sit down. And then the other one is, okay, that's the big question, but you need to daily assess. And one of the best ways to grow is not to read a book on growth and not to have somebody tell you the top 10 things you do to make a healthy marriage. Just weekly start asking God questions and your wife questions. What do you want? What would you like? What Just any question, like even if you're in a moment, you're sitting in the car, ask God, what should I do now? And you say, well, God doesn't speak to me that way. We'll do this. Just say, uh, God, should I say something encouraging to my wife? Yes or no? Yes or no? And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find yes rise up in you. Should, should I go in and talk with my spouse? Yes or no? It's like you're probably going to find a yes rise up in you. Start asking those questions. If you're not asking, like you would do with your lawn or anything else, you'd look around and say, oh, that's working well. That isn't working well. Mm -hmm. You'd say, that I don't know how to fix that. I know there's a problem. You go find a solution. Uh, if you don't do this, you're not going to grow. Now, I don't know if this is your question, John, but even people forget to ask the questions. So I'm going to hit at this even harder. I told you most of the guys listening probably aren't going to do this. But here's the next thing. Put it on a calendar that you ask the question. So at the end of the week, something like, did I ask my wife questions this week? Mm -hmm. Did I ask God questions this week about my marriage? And put it as a timer. So for the hopeless people out there, the people who are hurting, I'm not trying to belittle you, but you can do this. You can take a next step. Now, if your wife doesn't go with you on this, at least you know you tried your best. And that's what you always want to know. Like, I gave my best to this. Even if someone didn't partner with me, I can confidently say before the Lord and before myself in front of the mirror that I tried my hardest to bring us together in a healthy marriage. Coming up, it truly is keep score of what the other person is giving because that leads to gratitude. And then you okay. want to bless as opposed to dredging it up out of willpower. Like, okay, got to figure out what to do to bless my spouse. More on marriage when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Good marriages take time. Good marriages take work. And the gift of love between a man and a woman in marriage requires a number of disciplines. Shanti Feldhahn is a prolific writer on marriage. Most recently, she's been doing research on marriages that work. She was a guest of Jim Daly and John Fuller, our friends at Focus on the Family. I want to start today... Shanti, by reminding married couples that you're in a spiritual battle. I think we often lose sight of how our flesh is at war with us. And not only that, the enemy uh, wants to also destroy our Christian marriages because it serves his purposes to discredit God's sacrificial love for us and to destroy our witness before the world. Uh, our marriage is the closest relationship we have on this earth, and it mirrors that self-sacrificing love that Christ has for us. Um, and in fact, you mentioned earlier about Paul saying, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, think on these good things to equip you to fight the spiritual battle for your marriage, right? Yeah. Let me give you an example. 
happy couple I was interviewing, I was asking them, and I do this with everybody, take me through your last conflict, the last time that somebody hurt your feelings and that there was a potential for it going downhill. And I was talking to this one guy who he had, was getting ready for a really important business trip and had asked his wife many times, are you going to pick up my shirts at the dry cleaners? I'm leaving really early in the morning. I can do it. No, no, honey. No, I got it. I'll get them. Okay, you sure? Because I can go by. No, no, sweetheart. I'll go get them. So he arrives home at 9 o'clock at night. The dry cleaners are closed and the shirts aren't there. Mm. And he has to leave <laughs> at 6 in the morning. And now he hasn't, you know, what am I going to do? This big business meeting. Gene, I did not talk to her about that. <laughs> <laughs> really, this was not a real example. And so I say, okay, what happens next? Because this is where it can all go downhill. I can't believe you, blah, 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 blah. And the enemy is going, you're right. She doesn't care. She doesn't appreciate and so I said, take me, what happens next? Well, I'm pounding the cabinet, you know, <laughs> putting the cabinets together that I've been making. And th- okay, what are you thinking? I'm thinking I asked her three times and I was willing to do it. And, and she said she would. And, but you know, that's not really fair because pound, 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 because, you know, the baby was sick all day and she's been home with these cranky kids who've been sick and she had to take the baby to the doctor. And then the, I know the line at the, to get the prescription was, took a long time and she had to go to the grocery store to get dinner and, And, you know, and she always feeds the family and she's always cooks me dinner and she's such a great mom. And why am I being such a jerk? Mm -hmm. You know, and what's just happened there is that he has refused to allow that little voice of the enemy. She doesn't appreciate you. you. You work so hard and she doesn't care. He's refused to allow that. And instead, he's talking himself out of being mad Mm. by focusing on what is good, not what's bad, and what's lovely instead of what's maybe not so perfect right now, and what he can appreciate instead of what's driving him crazy legitimately. And that is an example of the kind of things that we can learn from the happy couples, because what they have found really is the secret sauce to a happy marriage. Okay, now I've got to hit another trait that you identified, though, because it seems, again, counterintuitive, where you talk about this idea that keeping score is a good thing to do. <laughs> I knew you it, were going to bring that It sounds totally <laughs> opposite, but what did you find in that regard? Keeping score is good? Yeah, we are always told not to keep score, not to keep score. And instead, these happy couples absolutely did keep score, believe I mean, it or like not. like in a gentle they, way? Yeah. But they kept score totally differently. Oh, okay. They kept score of what the other person was giving. And so it was really interesting watching the difference instead of where, of course, it's terrible to keep score of what they're not giving. And the of wrongs. course, it's going to be awful to keep score of the wrongs and what they're getting and I'm not getting. You know, I mean, that's going to always derail your Describe marriage. Describe what, what the healthy way of keeping score so looks like. An example. All right. So the same husband that I was just talking about, he was describing how... Um, with his wife, she had gone through a season where their kids were actually sick for a whole week and in and out of the doctors and cranky kids, and she's a stay-at-home mom. And so he's automatically, he's going, wow, I'm really aware of the fact that she's had this really hard week and she's been with these sick kids and, oh my goodness, she's giving so much to them and she's got to be so tired. So, you know, come Saturday when I'm home from work, honey, why don't you just... Give me the kids. I'll take the cranky kids and the sick, you know, and wiping their noses and all that. And you go out with your girlfriends and you just get out for the day because he is so aware of what she's been giving that there's this gratitude. And so there's this outpouring of what can I do to give back? And it's not like, 
you know, I'm just going to be such a wonderful husband and I'm going to allow her to go out because I'm just that nice of a man. And instead, it's like, no, I am seriously grateful because I notice what she's giving. And so I want to give back. And then that day, she goes out with her girlfriends and she's like, wow, that was so sweet of him. He's such a nice guy. What can I do to give back and to him? And all her girlfriends are saying and that, too. And all her girlfriends are saying <laughs> that, too. And what can I do to give back to him? Because she's grateful. And it becomes this positive cycle. This one right here is another one of the common ways that the couples who started out very unhappy ended up very happy in their marriage. But are you really saying um, keep score of how you can bless your spouse? Actually, believe it or not, it's not just that. It truly is keep score of what the other person is giving because that leads to gratitude. And then you want to bless as opposed to dredging it up out of willpower like, okay, got to figure out what to do to bless my spouse because it really is out of a gratitude and a love. I think it's important probably to recognize, Shanti, that this is a a matter of time here. This is not an instant fix. Jim, I remember one time Dina went off on a women's conference uh, for the weekend, and I was so happy about being the hero and managing the fort with so many kids, and we made it through the weekend, and I knew she was going to walk in the door and just throw her arms around me and thank me, and she walked in the door and said, I am sick, good night. <laughs> so well, I mean, so there, I, there I am standing with all this expectation, and and I mean, if I would have stopped there in keeping score of a good thing, I mean, it, it could have stopped me dead in my tracks. Her response wasn't what I wanted to see. So there is an element of time here, right? Oh, always. I mean, listen, we are married to imperfect people, right? I mean, and and you know what, we. Are imperfect oh, there people, you go. and they the are married to, and well, they are I, I married very, to us. Too. I was very proud in my <laughs> handling of that, so I was. You're proud of that. your imperfection. Yeah. Well, you know, we're all we've all been in those shoes. I think we could all come up with examples for that, and this is all part of that grace and that generosity. This is actually, to me, one of the reasons why. You know, Jim, you talked about you needed to rely on God for this kind of awareness of what the other person is giving and really, truly how to look at the positive instead of the negative. I mean, because that doesn't come naturally. One of the other things that I found in the research, there was a very high number of these highly happy couples that said, I can't do it on my own, that I have to rely on God. Coming up, 53% of people who say that God is at the center of their marriage are not just happy, they're very happy. More with Shanti Feldhahn and Focus on the Family when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. AM Radio provides always-on news, sports, talk, traffic, and weather reports. And it's also a vital service that provides important emergency information when your community needs it most. Tell Congress you need AM Radio to stay in your car. Because when cell phones and the Internet are down, this free emergency service is critical. And when you don't have electricity, radio in the car is often your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM Radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Let's be honest. There are lots of reasons one might become cynical or even skeptical about marriage. From various studies on divorce rates to the cultural idea that marriage itself is somehow outdated. But don't you believe it. Marriage is a good, good gift. Let's return for a few more minutes with Shanti Feldhahn on Focus on the Family with Jim Daly and John Fuller. 
as a researcher, I was pretty careful to try to go beyond the bounds of the church and interview people in coffee shops and airports. And, you know, I always feel bad for the person sitting next to me on the airplane for two hours. You know, it's like, <laughs> You're that person? <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> I get great data, though. But, but here's what really stunned me. I was on purpose trying to find people who might not believe in God. Uh-huh. But they kept bringing him up. It was funny. Like, I'd talk to them and say, you know, and they would, if they had shown that they were the highly happy couple, you know, I'd say, okay, so help me understand. What are some of the secrets? You know, why are you so happy? And they would often look at each other and then look at me and say, it's because of Jesus Christ. Huh. And I could tell they were saying, ooh, it's a chance to witness to a social researcher, <laughs> you <laughs> right. know, and which was so encouraging to me. Let me ask you this, though, and that is encouraging, but to those who didn't um, point to a relationship yeah. with Christ. Which did happen, of course. Did you find the biblical principles still in play? Uh, yes, mm-hmm. very much so. that's what I would think would be And that absolutely true. was, I mean, and every now and then I'd jot down a note on my, you know, little notebook and I'd say, huh, you know, it's actually one, because they'd be talking about being kind, for example, speaking kind kindly to one another. And I'm like, yeah, like, you know, the Bible says be kind to one another. You know, I'd, I'd try to like get it across. You know, you're living by biblical principles. You're not realizing it. <laughs> no, and that to me is encouraging. That should be self-evident then mm-hmm. when you're witnessing to somebody to be able to bring these things up. Well, here's one of the things that was really, as I started looking into the numbers, we have this um, this belief that really isn't true in our culture, that most couples are just kind of hanging on and that they're really not enjoying their marriages. And right. We have the, bought into that. We've kind of bought into even that. Even Christians. Belief. And it's not true at all. And, you know, all the studies that have been done have found that 80% of marriages on average, 80% of marriages are happy. And it's not perfect, certainly, but enjoying being married generally. 80%. 80%. Folks hear that? 80%. Hmm. And the thing, one of the things that to me is even more encouraging is when I started studying what the numbers really are in the church, because we've kind of bought into this idea that, that 50%. You know, 50, yeah, 50% divorce rate and, and it's the same in the church. And none of that is, and that is so not true. It's based on some big misunderstandings of the Barna data. And that in the church, instead, what percentage of these couples who say that they're looking to God as the center of their marriage, what percentage aren't just happy? What percent are very happy? Mm -hmm. Where both the husband and the wife are just loving this gift that God has given them. 53% of -hmm. people who say that God is at the center of their marriage are not just happy, they're very happy. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to ChristianOutlook.com. Encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.